Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Um, so I know Joshua Aaron's version of Odiladonai and Kitov, he sings, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Um, there's another translation, though, that's his mercy endures forever. And um, that is just thinking about that. We give thanks to the Lord because he is so merciful and so loving and so kind that it's just mind-blowing. So I've been working on being very positive this week and not complaining about anything because the other week I had a very bad week and I felt like I was so negative. But this week I was just trying to be thankful for everything that I have. So hearing that song and remembering that even in our darkest time, he is so merciful and he is so kind and forgiving even when we complain. Like it's just, that was really, that was a blessing to hear. Specifically, as you're mentioning, uh, chasdo, right, is from the word chesed, which is really hard to translate into English because it's layered with meaning. Like you mentioned, it can be um, his goodness, it can be his loving kindness, it can be his mercies. I think the best uh, translation I've seen for it is his covenant loyalty, right? And so when you think about the covenant loyalty of God, all that's contained in it. His, his love, his mercy, um, his faithfulness, just, and it endures forever. So I uh, love the song. So yeah, Hodu la Adonai Kitov, Ki Leolam Chasdo, right? And uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness, his covenant loyalty, his mercies are forever. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, it all goes back to the covenant. And it's, it's part of his character, his nature, who he is. Yeah, amen. Anybody else? So, as I mentioned earlier today, today is the eighth day of Sukkot, a seven-day holiday, right? And today is called Shemini Atzeret. It's the eighth day. And it's connected to Sukkot, very much so. Uh, you know, of course, the Lord says that for seven days you'll dwell in booths, and the first day and the eighth day are Sabbath days of rest. So the Lord links them together, even though they are distinct, right? Even the offerings that are made during the seven days of Sukkot are different than the offerings that are made on the eighth day. Um, during the seven days of Sukkot, there are 70 bulls offered when sacrifices are made, okay? The number seven, in each day a different number is, is made until you complete the 70 on that seventh day. And the 70 represents the nations, okay? Because there were 70 nations detailed in, in Genesis. And so there, the sages understand that the number 70 it represents the nations. So when the offerings are being made at the time of Sukkot, the 70 bulls being offered up, those are offerings being made up on behalf of the nations as part of the ingathering of the nations, the intercession for the nations so that they might come and know who God is, right? So that he'd be revealed to all the ends of the earth. So when you think about the offerings made in the temple and the role of Israel 
in God's plan of redemption, you see that it's, it's central to the complete restoration. Because God's intent is not just to redeem one nation, but to redeem all of his creation. Right? And so it, at the time of Sukkot, you see that played out in the offerings and in the idea of it being the feast of ingathering, looking forward to the time when God will bring back all of Israel to Jerusalem and the nations who have attached themselves to him. It's the, the redemption of, of the complete and unified commonwealth of Israel that is coming, coming soon. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and so when we look at this, okay, the 70 bulls as of yesterday would have been completed as far as their offerings would go. That symbolizes the ingathering of the nations being completed. Yesterday was Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day, the great the great salvation, where the, as we talked about last week, um, when we were out in the wilderness, we talked about the water pouring ceremony and how they, the, the priest would draw water and he would pour it on the altar every day of Sukkot, but then on that last day, he would circle the altar seven times and pour out the water in a joyous celebration. And how Yeshua stood up at that time and said, that all who believe in him should come to him and drink, right? And that he is the, the well of salvation. Right? We talked about how the water in the, in the messianic era, actually really in the world to come, will flow from Jerusalem. Actually, I think it's going to be both in the messianic era and the world to come. The water will flow forth from Jerusalem and that there will be trees of life on either side of that river and they will bring fruit and then leaves for healing, and the leaves being for the healings of the nation. We talked about how Yeshua is that well of salvation from which the Holy Spirit and the Torah pour forth to, to heal all of the nations. So now, all that's done, right? And now we're coming into this eighth day. And this eighth day is in itself its own appointed time and a day of rest, but it's inextricably linked to what was completed at Sukkot. Right? Because you can't go into the eighth day without first going through the seven days of Sukkot. It's kind of like really within the cycles that God created in his appointed times. You have to have each one building upon the other to reach the completion. You have to have redemption at Passover to then become in co- to then come into covenant with God at Shavuot. And then from a place of covenant with God and a bride making herself ready for the proclamation of the coming of the king and his coronation, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Teruah, on to the judgment and then into the God's dwelling with man and the new world to come. Right? It's all sequential. Now, granted, it's, you know, uh, God does these cycles multiple times. He goes through and he brings multiple redemptions. He gives multiple revelations of who he is and covenant increase. But there's a progression that has to take place. So now we've finished the seven days of Sukkot. Now we're in the eighth day. And the number eight is symbolic of new beginnings. Right? It's symbolic of new beginnings. And on this eighth day, we call it Shemini Yatzeret. It's also in the land of Israel, Simchat Torah, the rejoicing in the Torah. So on the eighth day, the Torah cycle is completed. 
with the last reading in the book of Deuteronomy, and the Torah cycle is then begun anew the same day with beginning to read from the book of Genesis. So again, we have a cycle, this Torah reading cycle where we see from creation to the, people, the children of Israel being on the brink of entering the promised land, right? And when they enter into the promised land in this world to come, God will dwell with them and we'll be right back at Genesis with God dwelling with man in a new creation. So, I mean, there, there's these cycles and patterns that are they're put into place. So in the diaspora or outside of Israel, Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah are typically observed on different days. So today, the eighth day would be Shemini Atzeret. Tomorrow, the day after, because of the doubling of holidays, would be Simchat Torah. Now today, we're going to kind of, we're going to go a little bit more in line with what's done in Israel. And there's going to be a little bit of a meshing here between Simchat Torah and Shemini Atzeret, because we're, we're going to complete the Torah cycle and begin again. But speaking further on these cycles, we have cycles every, every week, right? We have six days followed by the Sabbath, which is the seventh day and brings the week to completion. And then we make Havdalah, which closes out the Sabbath and begins the new week, and we go through it all again, right? So we have this weekly cycle. And that weekly cycle, as we've talked about in the past, is also representative of this current age that we live in, of 6,000 years of man, followed by a seventh millennium, which is the reign of Yeshua, completing the time of man and this world. Okay, then after that's completed, comes the world to come. Right, so technically that could be the eighth day. It's the first day of the new world to come, but it's also, it can be seen as an eighth day, right? After the seven are completed, and now we're moving into the new. And along this whole process of restoration that God's working out, he continues to reveal himself more and more, a progressive revelation of who he is and closer encounter with man until ultimately it culminates with God dwelling with man as he desired from the beginning. So it's really a neat, it's a neat story he's played out for us and that we get to be a part of. So we talk a lot about the messianic era and about the world to come, right? We're always looking forward to what lies ahead and ultimately seeing restoration and the complete fulfillment of God's promises, right? There's a longing that we have to see every tear wiped away, to see all pain obliterated, to see righteousness and justice in everything, in everyone's life, in all that we see around us, and to experience God in greater measure. So that's a desire of our heart. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, well, I think it's important that we understand there's a distinction between the thousand-year reign of Yeshua that we discuss as being the messianic era and the world to come, which is the period of time that follows the thousand-year reign. So I wanted to go spend a little bit of time in Revelation, just because we don't actually go spend much time in Revelation. For one thing, it's a pretty difficult book, but I feel like the last couple chapters are pretty straightforward. So we're going to delve into the last few, few chapters. We're going to skip all the confusing stuff and, and go right to the, 
you know, the little lob over the plate that we can just smack out, you know. <laughs> so let, let's go to Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Read, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Right? So in this case, what's, we're picking up with the idea that we've already come through redemption, we've already come through a place of being in covenant with God, and then through walking in covenant with God and keeping the testimony of, of Yeshua and his commandments, we have become a bride that is made ready for the coming groom and being made ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then jumping forward into verse 11, speaking of the return of Messiah, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war and his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So now we have the coming of the Messiah and his bride being ready and coming with him. Then skipping forward to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So at this point in time, at the return of Yeshua, the beast and the false prophet are, are locked away. Okay, they actually, they're put in the lake of fire. But then the serpent, the adversary, Satan, is bound and placed in the abyss for a thousand-year period. This 1,000-year period that he's in the abyss is the time that Yeshua is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and bringing restoration to the entire world, right? It says that he will rule with a uh, he will rule with a rod of iron, okay? And he he will smite the nations, right? He he judges the nations who would come against the children of Israel, and then he rules the world. The Torah goes goes forth from Zion, and he sits as king during this thousand years that the adversary is bound up. Okay, so now the earth is being redeemed and all nations are coming into subjection to King Yeshua. And this is the time that was spoken of in Zechariah when all the nations will come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, right? As part of the ingathering of the nations. This is all going to take place there in the Messianic era. This is what we talk about with the Messianic era. And, and then in verse in uh, verse 4 of chapter 20, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Yeshua, 
and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Messiah and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay? That's pretty, that's a pretty good inheritance right there. Right? Those who have kept the testimony of Yeshua, those who have been faithful to him, are part of that first resurrection and serve as priests unto him. Wow. For a thousand years. And the role of those priests is, is part of the reconciliation, restoration of the whole world. Because who are they? You know, they're, they're blessing God, but they're also representing God to the nations and teaching the nations of who God is. So they might, too, walk according to his ways. So that's the first resurrection and the millennial reign. Okay, so that's what we call the messianic era. We look forward to that. That's going to be... It's going to be a beautiful time. Okay, so then next, what follows, verse 7, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Jumping forward to verse 10, And the devil who deceived the people and caused them to rebel again was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is speaking of, at the end of the messianic era, there will be the resurrection of all and the final judgment. And that completes... The 7,000 years leading up to the world to come. So it would be Olam Hazeh is this world, okay? And Olam Haba is the world to come, right? So Olam Hazeh is done at this point, and now a new beginning is taking place. And Olam Haba, the, the age that is coming, now begins here in chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, or the sukkah, of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. (laughs) So, you know, we're talking about the messianic era, and we're looking forward to it. It's going to be great and glorious. Yeshua is going to reign as king, right? Water will flow forth from Jerusalem. The wa- from the wells of salvation, this life-giving water will come. And it's going to be this great time of restoration. But that's not the end. Like, that's, that's still building up to the beauty and the mag- majesty of what will come on that eighth day. When the tabernacle of God is with man. And he has wiped away every tear, and there is no more death. There is no more crying and pain. Because death still occurs during the Messianic era. As wonderful and glorious as that is, that still occurs. But it's going to be done away with. Just as the serpent, the accuser, is thrown in the lake of fire, so will death. And And sin. Absolutely. We're talking about... Well, I was going to say... We're talking about a new heaven and a new earth. (laughs) Plain and simple. We're talking a new heaven and a new earth where God walks in the cool of the garden with man. Right? We've heard that story before, right? In the beginning? Yeah. But it's even better to come. And I love how in verse 6 he says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And we know that spring of the water of life is Yeshua, his son. And he's already opened that up for us today. Right? We don't have to wait until this eighth day. The waters of salvation are already poured out and made available to us for all who will come and drink, for all who will come to the waters, all who will come to Yeshua, and drink without cost. Right? Isn't that Isaiah 55? (laughs) Wow. Apparently so. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commanders for the peoples. Amen. Good things are coming. Okay, so this is the world to come. God's dwelling with man. And then we continue on in Revelation 21, verse 22. This is speaking of what is in the new Jerusalem. He says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne 
of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall have no need of the light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Hmm. That sounds nice. (laughs) And you wonder why we talk about the Messianic era and the world to come so much. (laughs) Because it's glorious. It's the promises that God has made from the beginning and and his intention from the beginning being recognized and realized and that we get to be there with him and to be a part of it. And think about that too. They, They shall see his face. They shall see his face. No man has beheld the Father except the Son, right, who has revealed the Father. So we see the Father through Yeshua. But there's going to be something different. Right? Because Yeshua is the the fullness of the image of God manifest in this earth. Okay? With all its limitations. But then, what will the revelation of God be in the world to come? Where people won't have to teach their neighbor know the Lord, but they will all know him from the least to the greatest. When the knowledge and the revelation of God has covered the entire earth. Something good to look forward to. <laughs> and so here today, we're celebrating the eighth day. We're celebrating and proclaiming the world to come. Right? That it will happen because God has said it will happen. And what does he say? He said, these words are faithful and true. Amen. Well, we're done. No. <laughs> we could be. Yeah, I don't know what to do. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, praise God. But yeah, so we read the easy part of Revelation. <laughs> there you go. So we'll have to get into the other parts some other time. But wow, what glory awaits us and, and what glory in Yeshua. I'm curious off the top of my head, I can't think of anywhere in the Tanakh that the thousand years specifically is mentioned, but I know that it's all over the place in rabbinic literature that speaks of the thousand year reign of Messiah, and obviously it's clearly written out in Revelation. Right. So I'm curious if that was passed down through tradition and you know, kind of the, the oral tradition and understanding and Revelation or if there's actually somewhere specifically in the prophets that I'm just not remembering that it's actually written out. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's specifically written out. I do know, as you mentioned, that it's throughout rabbinic literature and it's all extrapolated from what's written in the Torah, you know, with the six days of creation and the seventh day that God declared was holy and, and the completion and the rest. Um, I don't know about it being explicitly mentioned. There are, there are several things in the apostolic scripture 
that are stated as though they're firmly founded. You know, like, for example, when um, uh, Paul talks about the rock that followed Israel through the, through the desert, right? And they were all baptized in that and all drank from that same spiritual rock. That's part of rabbinic literature as well. So, but yeah, it's stated as though this is the way it is. Right? And so the thousand years uh, could have been additional revelation given to John, but certainly lined up with the traditional teachings. Yeah. Okay, so with speaking of our completions of cycles, I'd like us to go ahead and uh, we're going to complete the Torah cycle and begin the new Torah cycle again. So if we could turn to Deuteronomy 34, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, which I think is the entirety of Deuteronomy 34. Actually, I'd like to get a reader to come up and read Deuteronomy 34. Moses ascended from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the summit of the cliff that faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him the entire land, the Gilead as far as Dan of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the entire land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, the valley of Jericho, city of date palms as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abram, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross over to there. So Moses, servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab by the mouth of the Lord. He buried him in the depression in the land of Moab opposite of Beth Peor, and no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was, one of, was 120 years old when he died. His eyes had not dimmed and his vigor had not diminished. The children of Israel bewailed Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And then the days of tearful mourning for, the, for Moses ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him. So the children of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Never again has there arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord had known face to face, as evidenced by all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his, and all his courtiers and all his land, and by all the strong hand and awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of all Israel. Thank you, Jared. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was the, the, the final passage here in uh, the book of Deuteronomy within the Torah. And traditionally, when a scroll of, of Torah is finished, like when you finish one of the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then once you've completed the reading, uh, there's a the congregation proclaims in Hebrew, chazak, chazak, vanit hazek. Okay, and that means be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. So, I'd like us all to say it together. Chazak, chazak, vanit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. Amen. You know, so many times within the, within the Torah, you know, each one of these are unique books, 
but they open up with and. You know, Genesis starts out with Bereshit in the beginning, right? But each other book of the Bible, like, uh, so if you go to Exodus, Exodus says, and these are the names of the children of Israel. They're all this continuation. And then you finish Deuteronomy, and you say, be strong, be strong, maybe be strengthened, then you begin again. Very cool. And then, as Michael has mentioned many times in the past, the last letter in Deuteronomy is Lamed. The first letter in, in Bereshit is Beit. And you put the two together, you have Lev, which is heart. Right? Yeah. God with love. Okay, so now let's pick back up. Let's start over again. Let's go to Genesis 1. And may I get a reader for Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Amen. Thank you. So there was a new heavens and a new earth. And God said, let there be light. Think about that, right? In the new, in the new heavens and the new earth. God and the Lamb are the light. Right? Mm. And you remember, too, I mean, okay, so... This is probably something to say next week. I don't know, but maybe we'll say it both weeks. But God said, let there be light, right? And when he said that, the sun had not yet been created. So the light that was shining forth on that first day was not the light of the sun. It was the primordial light. It's the light of God. Not a created light. Pretty cool. All right. So here we are in Genesis 1 in the new creation. And in this time, we know that God planted a garden in Eden and then that he placed Adam and Eve there. Right? And the scripture says that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day and talk with Adam and Eve. Right? He would encounter them. You know, when he planted the garden and made it a place where he then created man and placed man there, and then he would walk among, among it, he was showing what his desire was. That his desire was to be with man. Right? And in Exodus 25, 8, the Lord said, Have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You are to make it all precisely according to everything that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings within, just so you must make it. Okay, so I'm wondering. Within this, there's an understanding that when God said of all these things that I show you, the 
that he was speaking to Moses. Okay, he's speaking to Moses at that time when Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And the presence of God has descended into, onto Mount Sinai. Heaven has come down to earth, right? You've got in this space on top of Mount Sinai, you have heaven and earth together. You have Moses there in the midst of the heavens. And he's beholding the holy temple. And then God says, make a sanctuary according to everything that I show you. According to this heavenly tabernacle, you're going to make a representation on earth. Okay? It's heaven invading earth. Right? An earth that had been defiled through sin and had been fallen has to be redeemed and restored such that heaven and earth can be together. So, you know, so that God's will can be on earth as, as it is in heaven. And so he makes this representation, but he, God was expressing his desire to dwell among man or even within man. So within all this, okay, if we're talking about patterns and cycles and we're talking about God having this desire to see all of the restoration take place and to restore what was lost such that he might have a dwelling place here on earth. And we know that that day is coming. We look at what, what happens in these cycles and how God has worked by measure throughout time to bring about his plan of restoration. Rather than just doing it all in one swoop, he's done it by measure. So we look and we see at Sinai, God's presence came down on the mountain. And then we see his presence in the glory cloud came down on the tabernacle in the wilderness. It again came down on the first temple in Jerusalem. Now, of course, at this point in time, in the wilderness, the tabernacle had been, been put together, and it was a temporary traveling tabernacle, and God's presence came upon it. And then God set Jerusalem as the place where his name would be established, and then the temple was built there. So now we're getting more permanent. We're moving further along. And again, God's glory comes and fills the temple. And then we see God's presence come in the person of Yeshua, right? A greater revelation of himself, of Yeshua, who will come again, right? And then after that, God's presence comes upon the believers at Pentecost on Shavuot, right? They're at the temple. And then we know God will dwell with man again, and fulfill all that he's promised. And it's interesting because in these aspects, it really is heaven invading earth. It's God and his infinite presence, right, being condensed and brought into his creation. And even a new Jerusalem will descend from heaven, right, in that eighth day that's coming. And within the themes of Sukkot, right? We talked about one of the key themes is the union of heaven and earth, bringing the two together, like with the sukkah. You take that which grew from the ground, from the earth, and you raise it up over the sukkah into the heavens, right? The idea of, I mean, this is, this holiday, this, this holy day is filled with images of heaven and earth coming together, and God's glory being revealed. I love all the consistency.
It's a lot of fun. Um, okay. There's so much we could talk about. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk just briefly about the time of the dedication of the temple, the first temple. And then we're going to go talk about Joshua. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. hope you have a long time. I don't know if we're going to be able to talk about all that. We only have 15 minutes. And the child care workers would be glaring at me right now. <laughs> um, all right, so let's go, let's go ahead and let's go to 1 Kings 8. Because in 1 Kings 8, there are wonderful things shown about God's plan. Um, and I'm not going to read all the scriptures that I had outlined. So I'll tell a little background. So David wanted to build a house for God. But God said, no, there's blood on your hands, and so your son will build the house. So David got to make preparations for it, to make things ready for his son then to go forward and build the temple. And in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he began to build the temple. And it was completed in the eighth month of his 11th year of reign. Okay, so it was a seven-year construction process. And when the scripture says that it was completed in the eighth month, okay, it was speaking of Cheshvan. Okay, this month that we're currently in is the seventh month. It's Tishrei. And in the eighth month, the temple was completed. Okay? But then the temple wasn't dedicated until Tishrei the following year. They waited 11 months to dedicate the temple, which is really fascinating to me because... I would think that you'd be ready and raring to go, right? It's like, hey, we've got it. Let's get this thing up and running. This is exciting. But there was an 11-month delay. I don't know what the 11-month delay is for. So sorry if you were hoping that I was going there. I know, I know. I, I am too. <laughs> right, yeah. No pelting with etrogs. <laughs> Yeah, but he'll, he'll bring it over. <laughs> um, but within it, you know, okay, so if it was completed in the seventh year, and then they waited until Tishrei the following year to dedicate the temple, and they were dedicating the temple in the eighth year. Ah, kind of a connection there with Shemini Atzeret. Okay? Kind of a little, a little connection there. Now, I don't know if that's, Take it for what it is. And so they brought the, they brought the uh, ark up to the temple. And Solomon gave an incredible prayer, which I really recommend you reading on your own from in 1 Kings 8, verses 22 through 53. That's where we get the whole concept of praying towards Jerusalem. Because part of Solomon's prayer was explicitly like that God would hear people's prayers that were directed toward this place. 
So it's like, well, directed towards Jerusalem, towards the site of the temple. And so it's like, okay, well, let's face east. You know, if you were in, if you were at the North Pole, you'd face south. If you were in Australia, you'd face north, maybe a little bit northwest, right? But anyway, whatever it is, it's everybody's prayers being directed toward the place where God has chosen to place his name. But anyway, it's a beautiful prayer. But in 1 Kings 8, 54, the scripture says, And it came about that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he promised through Moses his servant. May the Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself. You hear that? That he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. Okay, so what struck me in this was Solomon's statement that God had given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word has failed. And when I read that, I was like, this is a picture of the Messianic era. Right? Because Solomon was a, a, a type of Messiah. Right? He was the son of David who was given unto him all wisdom, right? Who's in, who was the one to come and build the temple and to, to be over a united Israel in peace, right? And so it's, it's a picture of Yeshua in the day when he too will inaugurate the third temple and say not one of God's promises has failed. Right? In Ezekiel 43, 7, Speaking of the third temple, the scripture says, God will declare, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the, of the people of Israel forever. So the presence of God came down upon the temple, that first temple. And according to the sages, the second temple didn't have the presence of God come upon it. It did come upon the first. We know that God's presence did come to the second temple at the time of the outpouring of the Spirit because they were there in the temple at the time of the outpouring of the Spirit. But then it's not the same as the glory falling there in the temple and remaining. But then Ezekiel talks about a time when the third temple stands and the glory of God will fill the temple entering by the eastern gate. Right? And that gate will be shut because the presence of the Lord has entered through it. So we're talking messianic era here. Right? Where Yeshua reigns and the presence of God is again among his people in a manifest, tangible way. Okay. Um, so we see that with Yeshua. Okay, now we're going to briefly go... Talk about Joshua. 
Because where we left off with the reading of, uh, of Moses getting ready to die, right? And how he had brought the people right to the edge of the promised land. And God tells Moses that he can't bring the children of Israel across because, because he failed to sanctify the name of God. So his sin precluded him from entering the land. There's, there's other reasons as well that we could go into, but that's a, a primary thing is that there was a limitation that he had come up short despite being faithful in God's house and being a servant of the Lord and dedicated, right? But God says that Joshua will cause the children of Israel to inherit. So I want to look in Joshua 1. I'm going to just start in, in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the Torah which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Okay, so God tells Joshua that Joshua will cause the children of Israel to inherit the land. Now Joshua, right? Joshua is the name Yoshua, okay? Yoshua in Hebrew. And the shortened Aramaic form of that is Yeshua. So it's really the same name, just represented in two different languages. But we, it's hard for us to see it when Joshua and Jesus are so different, or even Joshua and Yeshua are so different, right? But when we think about Moses, who was the former Redeemer, and the latter will, Redeemer will be like him, and who came after him, and who completed the task given to him, it was Yeshua, right? It was Yeshua. Real clear picture there. <laughs> you know? The one who causes to inherit the promised land and the promises is God's salvation, and so what we see, an image that's created in, this, in the storyline where Moses brings the children of Israel through, he, brings the children, he leads the children of Israel out through redemption. He brings them into covenant with God, reveals to them the Torah, guides them all the way up to the promised land, but it's not sufficient to bring the children of Israel into the land, into the fullness of the promises, Okay. The land is a picture of the world to come. 
Okay, the, the journey throughout all this redemption and all the covenants and all the time through the wilderness, that's the picture of the 7,000 years. Okay, and then the 7,000 years are completed and you enter into the eighth day, you enter into the world to come. And the ticket into the world to come has to come through Yeshua. Right? There's no other way to enter into it because it's Yeshua will cause the children of God to inherit the promises. Because there's no way that our, our flesh, our lives that have borne sin can enter into that. Just regardless of how faithful we can try to be to keep the testimony of Yeshua and to heed the Torah and to obey God's commandments and hold fast to them, we can't enter except through the blood of the Lamb, except through Yeshua who causes us to inherit. So we have that picture here given at the end of Moses' life and the beginning of Joshua's life. Or not beginning of Joshua's life. But the beginning of Joshua's headship, right? Because now at this point, he has been faithful. He has been in the tent of study. He has learned from Moses. He has walked diligently throughout his life. And now he's given the headship, right, to then lead the people over. So Yeshua is the way into the world to come, and that's actually what Hebrews 9, chapter 8 says, is that Yeshua uh, is the way into the world to come. We'll have to look at a study on that one too sometime. But uh, a lot of deep imagery. Okay, so Yeshua is the way into the world to come. He's the one who causes to inherit. But just holding back a little bit here on Joshua and who Joshua was and what he was like. He was one, as I mentioned, he was a faithful servant. He was always at Moses' side. He was always there at the tabernacle, availing himself to the ways of the Lord in preparation. In Proverbs 27, 18, the scripture says, he who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who cares for his master will be honored. Okay, so it's often spoken that this is, is referring to Joshua. Okay, because he cared for his master and he tended the fig tree. Now, what's the big deal about tending the fig tree? You know, if you're talking about like a, an apple tree or a citrus tree, all the fruit ripens at one time. Okay, your harvest is at one point. But a fig tree bears fruit over a long period of time. You harvest it over several months. It's producing fruit. And so, just as Joshua was continually availing himself to the Lord, it's like he was taking in this long-term harvest, if that makes sense. And when we look at what our lives are before the Lord... Our lives are to be represented by a continual faithfulness and always coming and always gleaning from the fruit that he's offering. So we learn the Torah little by little, not all at once. We learn who Yeshua is and how to be like Yeshua little by little. Now there are transformations and there are great advancements. You know, we see huge step changes in our lives, either in knowledge or in Yeshua revealed in us. But for the most part, it's a, it's a continual coming and gleaning 
and learning and growing and applying. And in that, there's a diligence that we have to display and we have to hold to, we have to persevere. And then we also have to be comfortable realizing that we can't have the harvest all at once. But to rather glory in the fact that each time we're gathering the fruit, we're going from glory to glory, right? We're seeing Yeshua revealed more in us. We're taking hold more and more of what's been given. And so it's a process. Just like God's plan of redemption is a process that he's been working out over thousands of years, our life is a process of growing deeper and deeper into relationship with him and into knowing who he is. So it's for us to, to walk in faithfulness, to be strong and courageous, right? Not to let the book of the Torah depart from our mouth, neither the Torah who's made flesh, who is Yeshua and his testimony, nor the Torah that has been written for us, so that we might hold fast to God's ways, just as Solomon was exhorted and, and Joshua was exhorted to cling fast, to meditate on God's word. We too get that same call to pass on from generation to generation. And one last thing that we didn't read, but within our gospel section today, it spoke about Yeshua being circumcised on the eighth day and how everything around his birth was done according to the Torah. You know, here's the, the greatest revelation of God given on earth in the form of Yeshua. He was given to a righteous man, a tzaddik, Joseph, and to the handmaiden of the Lord, Miriam. Right? Two people who loved the, loved the Lord and were given to him completely. God did that so that because he knew they would raise Yeshua up according to his ways, kind of like when God chose Abraham, because he knew Abraham would raise his children according to the ways of the Lord and so they might know him. Well, Joseph and Miriam, they got Yeshua because God knew that they would raise him up. Because here's Yeshua. He's eight days old. And the first commandment of Torah is being fulfilled in his flesh. Right? But he couldn't do it on his own. Right? I mean, he was faithful in all aspects of the Torah, but here at the beginning of his life, he couldn't do it on his own. He had to have parents who would lead him into the truth to pass on from generation to generation what the goodness and ways of God are. So, just you know, something worth thinking on as we think about where we are in the process of this redemption and this restoration. You know, we're looking forward to the messianic era. We're looking forward to the age to come, and we celebrate those things because we know they'll happen because God is faithful and true. And along the way, our faithfulness plays a part in that restoration so we might give glory and thanks to him. So let us go on today and be joyful and rejoice in what's to come and to know, actually, that's Hodula Adonai Kitov Kileolam Chasdo. It comes right back to that. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness, his mercy, his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness endures forever. Amen. So, Lord, we love you. We bless you. We thank you that you are good. And your goodness knows no bounds, Lord. You are faithful. 
And we give you thanks for, again, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And we give you praise and thanks in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.